quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Former Vice President Mike Pence has been subpoenaed by the special counsel investigating Donald Trump to testify about his former boss. The special counsel seeking information from Pence about his interactions with Donald Trump leading up to the election and what happened on January 6th. Nothing like that or like this has ever happened before, so we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Plus tonight, the latest installment of the George Santos soap opera. We have new info involving puppies, Amish dog breeders, and $15,000 worth of bad checks. And what liberals can learn from Ron DeSantis. There's a piece in the New York Times that warns liberals not to underestimate DeSantis. Quote, he may resemble Trump in politics, but not in his intellect or resolve. Let's get right to the news. Here with me in studio, we have CNN political analyst Natasha Alford, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman, and CNN anchor John Berman. Seamless, people. Seamless. You walked all the way over here. Very nice. Across a bridge, okay, everyone? (laughs) Pretty good. Um, Great to have all of you guys. Nick, uh, uh, obviously they want to talk to uh, Vice President Pence. He was key in all of this, but specifically, what information can he provide that no one else can? Well, he had direct one-on-one conversations with Donald Trump. There is absolutely no way the special counsel can decide whether to indict or not to indict Donald Trump until he first puts Vice President Pence under oath in a grand jury and asks him what they said, what Donald Trump said to him and what he said to Donald Trump. Well, I'm surprised to hear you say that because they do have a lot of other information. Let me pull up this full screen, this graphic that we have of who has already testified before the grand jury. Okay, so not, you know, the special counsel. But they have this information. Pat Cipollone, Patrick Philbin, former deputy White House counsel, Mark Short, former Pence chief of staff, Greg Jacob, Pence general counsel, Ken Cuccinelli, former Trump DHS official, uh, Eric uh, Hirschman, former Trump White House lawyer. Why, Why is Pence so instrumental if they already have information from all of those people? Because a lot of that information is hearsay, for starters. And what they're really looking for are statements by Trump. What was his state of mind? What was he telling Pence? What did Pence tell him? I mean, there is no way you can have an indictment here unless they get that evidence on a grand jury in a subpoena and lock in Mike Pence. They have to know what he was going to say if they should go ahead and indict Donald Trump. Okay, one more question. Can Pence refuse a subpoena by the special counsel? Uh, he could try and refuse, but he could be held in contempt. He can be forced to go in to testify. He could claim executive privilege. But I think that that ship has already passed. I think that Pat Cipollone, as you just mentioned, was in before already in the grand jury. Uh, that issue about executive privilege has already been litigated in front of Judge Howell in the District of Columbia. So I don't see that he's got any room here 
other than to go in, tell the truth, and cooperate. Natasha? Your thoughts. I, I wonder about uh, the, the lack of willingness to just cooperate, right? It seems as if Mike Pence wants to walk this tightrope between still sort of being loyal to Trump, uh, still being seen as a hero in this moment. And, and you just wonder why. Like, what is it that he's still holding on to after all of this time, considering that Donald Trump was more than willing to throw him under the bus? Um, the memoir that he put out, you know, the fact that he was willing to talk about some of those interactions on that day, if you're willing to put that in the memoir, then you have to be willing to to speak when the time comes. John? Mike Pence knows exactly what Donald Trump told him to do or didn't tell him to do. He knows whether Donald Trump, the president of the United States, told him, Mike Pence, to use a power he did not have to overturn the election. His testimony on that is key. But you know who Mike Pence could have told about that conversation if occurred up until now? All of us, anyone, to Natasha's point, if Mike Pence wanted this information out there in an easy way, he could have done it at any time. But he's been playing a political game because he doesn't want to upset a potential Republican political base that he may need if he runs for president. Here's what he said to CNN about why he wasn't going to testify to the January 6th committee. So Congress, here's what he said. Congress has no right to my testimony. Congress doesn't report to the White House. The White House doesn't report to the Congress. And I, I truly do believe in defense of the separation of powers and to avoid what would be a terrible precedent. Oh, is this different, John? Way different. There's no separation of powers here. This isn't a congressional subpoena. This is a, a federal subpoena from an investigation that happens to come from the executive branch. The special counsel is part of the executive branch of the Justice Department. So that argument has no water. Natasha, here's what he said. You were talking about his memoir. Here is what he said in his memoir. He said uh, that he basically got a text, I I assume from Donald Trump, you're too honest, he chided. Hundreds of thousands are going to hate your guts. People are going to think you're stupid. Right. Again, he includes the quotes that make him seem uh, sort of to have the moral high ground (laughs) in the moment that matters the most. But you have to wonder, there were probably so many other moments in which uh, that moral high ground was tested, right? In which there were conversations that were had that indicated that something unjust was going to happen uh, or they were trying to overturn the election. And Mike Pence, you know, he he didn't speak up in those moments. So again, I am not really impressed by the selective quotes that he kind of puts out there to, to show how he responded in that moment. Nick, I'm still just surprised to say to hear you say that Donald Trump cannot be indicted unless the special counsel gets um, Vice President Pence's testimony. Because here again, sure, we don't know exactly what he said, right. what he told Mike Pence to do. But we know all of this other stuff that happened from social media to the rally to the not going basically MIA as the commander in chief and not putting out a statement for all of those hours. Except that the key piece of all of these schemes that Donald Trump was perpetrating, whether it was the fake electors, whether it was trying to get the state legislatures to put in new um, electors that were Trump electors, All of these items all hinged on whether or not Mike Pence would send these electors back to the states, back to the legislatures to have it redone. His whole point here of all of these items, all these different schemes that Donald Trump had cooked up uh, were basically geared towards Mike Pence acting outside of his duties as vice president rather than just the formality of voting, catch of just counting up the electoral vote of 
basically declaring that the vote was no good and it had to go back to the states. That was the whole point of what Donald Trump was trying to do. And when he couldn't get Mike Pence to do it, that's when the violence started. The whole idea was to stop that vote, to stop the Congress from doing anything, to have them go back home. In fact, I even think there was a plot to get Mike Pence out of the Capitol so that this couldn't go forward. Mike Pence thought that also. <laughs> right. I mean, that's why Mike Pence refused to get in right. the car. Right. He didn't like, There's a car flee. waiting right here for you. He was like, no, thanks. But he's a key guy. What a remarkable sight it would be if it ever came to a criminal case where charges were pressed and a former vice president was put in a courtroom to testify against his running mate, the president of the United States. Could you imagine something like that? I do want to present one reverse view of this, though. It's not impossible that people in Trump world think that Mike Pence's testimony could help Donald Trump. If Mike Pence were to testify, yeah, Trump asked me to do all these awful things, but during the whole time, Donald Trump really believed that the election was stolen, as ridiculous as that concept is. What Trump could argue is, look, I had no corrupt intent, and corrupt intent could be a key legal component to the charges against him. Yeah, it could, but the problem is he's involved in too many things. I mean, he was involved in the fake electors. He put John Eastman in touch with Rona McDaniels to basically get her to cooperate on putting together these fake electors. He was involved in trying to get the Justice Department to cook up a phony letter that would go to the legislature in Georgia. So he had put in his own puppet attorney general in order to tell the legislature, look, guys, there's you know, there's the fraud in this election. You've got to do something about it. All of these lies, including just those snippets that the January 6th committee showed, where Donald Trump, on one hand, would, was told and knew that he had lost the election, and then immediately, within 24 hours, turns around and says the election was stolen. And even worse, you've got John Eastman with a uh, email on December 31st. He's claiming to be Donald Trump's lawyer, they were concerned about Donald Trump swearing to certain facts about fake election results in Georgia. And John Eastman in that email says that Donald Trump knows that these are all false. So we can't really have him swear to the affidavit. Yet what do they do? They file an affidavit in federal court sworn to by Donald Trump. All one big lie. So I don't see how he gets around corrupt intent. Corrupt intent is simply doing something with an improper purpose. And clearly the improper purpose here was to try and keep himself in power, even though he lost the election. Okay, smarty pants, Look, you I, want to retract I, I, I your, say, uh, I your theory there, John? Argument. I didn't say it was a good <laughs> argument. I just said it was an argument. Nick, shut it down. An, an argument. Yeah. I'm making an argument. And Nick dispelled it. There you dis go. Dis we do that in law school all the I time. I know, that was, that was a real actual uh, lesson in brilliance. Um, thank you all very much. <laughs> Coming up, he lied about his resume, he lied about his family, he lied about being Jewish. In the latest George Santos saga, now it's about puppies. Why he was charged with theft in 2017 over some checks. We'll explain. Another night, another George Santos scandal fresh off his State of the Union encounter with Mitt Romney when the senator told Santos, you don't belong here. George Santos is back. This time, it's another bad check scandal. Several bad checks in his name went to dog breeders in Amish country in 2017. They were supposed to be for puppies. 
here with me in studio, Republican strategist Joe Pinion. Also back with us, we have Natasha Alford and John Berman. Let me explain. In 2017, George Santos was charged with theft by deception after these bad checks, and I think we can put them up on the screen, um, six of them for $2,000 plus were made out to, well, not all of them, but that was the high, um, made out to dog breeders for, an, in the memo, in each one it says puppies. Um, Joe, obviously this isn't the first time. He's also uh, wanted for forging checks uh, in Brazil. Um, he's being um, investigated for a Ponzi scheme. And now, oh, as you know, he also is being investigated for uh, ripping off a disabled vet um, who had a dying dog. And now these checks total $15,000 for puppies. What, I mean, at what point, what's the breaking point for Republicans when they've had enough? Look, I think, again, we just have to take a step back. I think all of the accusations in isolation by themselves are probably horrendous. Uh, the compound impact of them uh, should shock the conscience. But unfortunately, and I say that in, in, in a very serious way, uh, we are a nation of laws. That means that you are in this country innocent until proven guilty. I would not sit back here and say I wanted to sign up for defense of George Santos, but I will simply say uh, that that still has to mean something. And until he has been indicted, until he has been convicted of a crime, I think the notion that we just start removing members of Congress by virtue of allegation is a very slippery slope. Okay, so, so the breaking place. point for Republicans would be conviction, you're saying? Well, I think that's just the precedent that already exists in some cases. I think there are many members who have certainly not had the litany of issues that George Santos has had, but I think on both sides of the aisle we have seen that when you have members of Congress that get indicted but certainly convicted, I think that is when uh, they end up heading off to the proverbial guillotine. Yes, but sometimes, John, they're actually tossed out because of an ethics investigation um, before they're convicted. Yeah, well, Congress can vote to expel people, period. They can. True. Congress can decide it wants to do that. And there's also the Mitt Romney standard now that exists, which is they can walk the halls, walk by him and tell him every time, you shouldn't be here. Every member in that chamber could walk up to him anytime they see him and say, you shouldn't be here. So, I mean, I flunked the law class in the last segment. Yep. So this is my business school thing. There's an economics rate called the marginal rate of return, right? Mm. The marginal rate of outrage on each new George Santos scandal is actually very small because he's already done 12 dozen bonkers things. So, you know, Amish... Bad checks and puppy dealers and that mad lib, that only adds very little to the story. But the members of Congress, it should already be enough for them to do what Mitt Romney did. Well, look, I, I think there are plenty of members who are doing that. Certain members that don't want to be seen in pictures with George Santos, don't want to be seen canoodling with George Santos. That exists. I, I, I know this for a fact, and I think most people know this but for a fact. I think, but Kevin I think, McCarthy, Kevin I, McCarthy I, I, could do it. I think the reality is that it sets a dangerous precedent when you want to start saying you're going to throw people out of Congress before they've actually been convicted of a crime. It's a bad I think precedent. That, it's a hard precedent to match. Look, I, I, passing bad checks to Amish puppy dealers. If you draw the line there, well, look, again, if you draw that line, well, look, I, I think I think the, the problem is, right, yeah. yes, every, don't mess with the puppies, right? Don't mess with cats. Don't mess with puppies. Too late. Don't mess with the babies. Too late. I think with George, He's and I think also messed with the dying dog, according Look, to a veteran. I, I, again, I, I think all of these actions are abysmal. Right. I think that there's no place for them in society, much less probably in the halls of Congress. But that being said, again, we could talk about Adam Clayton Powell. We could talk about a lot of people that were unjustly thrown out of Congress. The circumstances are wildly different. Okay. But I think at the end of the day, there is a precedent that has to be set. 
that you do not thwart the will of the people. George Santos effectively undermined the will of the people, but you don't thwart the will of the people until they've actually been convicted of a crime. Go ahead, Natasha. My only thought is, like, it's the small moments of courage that matter. And what Mitt Romney did, I I think that was, like, a moment of courage. And each individual, if they did that, there would be power in that. But there's, again, we're in a, a partisan world where politics matters more than actual character. And so this is what you get when you invite this into your party. This is what you get. It is, I mean, it is distracting, let's be honest. Look, we're having this conversation. We're not talking about the inflation that is run amok. We're not talking about the fact that we have Every uh, night, George Santos takes up some airtime because there's yet another scandal. On some base level, the question is why, right? The the worst thing that... Because it's unheard of and it's so flagrant. It's brazen, it's flagrant. I I think the reality is that George Santos has a ton of problems that predate his time in Congress. I think the statements made by the entire of the Nassau GOP, including uh, two sitting members of Congress, yeah. speaks for itself. I think there are plenty of Republicans who are on the record. So I think this type of notion where we try to cherry pick the countryside to find which Republicans haven't said enough about George Santos, who's already done enough well, on his own accord, I think does us a great disservice in light of the fact that, again, there's so many other issues yes, that we can and should uh, be talking uh, uh, about. Granted, and we will be talking about them, but there is um, an ethics committee investigation that is supposed to be starting. I don't know why it hasn't started yet. Meanwhile, poor Manu Raju has another full-time job that he never asked for because he has to try to get George Santos to answer for some of these things. So there was a Ponzi scheme that he's accused of being a part of in 2020. So today, Manu Raju tried to get him to talk about that. So why, why did you work for a company that was later accused of being a Ponzi scheme? Did you, were you aware that it was a Ponzi scheme, sir? No, my no, I did not. Every day, John. Well, the hardest part is you know some senior producer called Manu right after that and said, wait a second, you didn't ask about the Amish puppy dealers. And Manu's like, I didn't know about them because that hadn't broke yet, but I was still talking about the last one. That's right. Every hour. I think what we're not talking about are the people of New York's 3rd Congressional District that effectively are bereft of representation. Obviously, the Nassau GOP is working in conjunction with now Anthony D'Esposito in NY4 to try to deal with the issues happening for those constituents. First of all, they were misled. I mean, they were misled by who Certainly. he was and his background. And then they're also, yeah, he's not working on legislation. He's Here, running away down the, thing, the hall. Right? I think that Looking to shake hands at State of the Union. <laughs> I think, again, you've got Richie Torres. God bless him. I don't know what he's going to do when George Santos is not around anymore. But the one good thing that came out of this was they did put forth the Santos Act. I think that's a step in the right direction. We can talk about what comes next. How do you prevent the next George Santos? But obsession over what's the next boot to drop for him, there'll be many more. I will predict it right here. Um, I don't think we'll be shocked by it. I just think, again, there's so much happening in this country, so many families in pain. I think that has to be the priority. Yes, uh, for sure. And we do cover all of that. But George Santos, it cannot be ignored because it is so peculiar to have a serial liar just lie right to your face. That's just, it needs to be, I think, called out. Thank you all. Stick around. Here's another topic. President Biden says he doesn't really see a difference between two of his likely 2024 opponents, Trump and DeSantis, But is that a mistake? Do Democrats have something to learn from Governor DeSantis? We're going to talk about that next.
President Biden saying tonight that he's not ready to decide if he'll seek re-election, although he's been dropping hints like crazy, even holding an event today in Florida, a key state, obviously, in the 2024 race. It's also home to two potential Republican rivals, former President Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis. New York Times columnist Pamela Paul writes today that liberals can learn a lot from DeSantis. Quote, it would be tempting to write off DeSantis, the bombastic Republican governor of Florida, as another unelectable right-wing lunatic unfit for national office. We've made that mistake before. We're back with Natasha Alford, Joe Pinion, and John Berman. So, Natasha, basically what Pamela Paul is saying is that uh, DeSantis is not Trump. People who think that he's the newfangled Trump, he's not Trump. He's stolen a page from Trump. Mm-hmm. But her argument is... We shouldn't underestimate DeSantis. He may resemble Trump in his politics, but not in his intellect or resolve. Compare their respective backgrounds, whereas Trump's acceptance into the University of Pennsylvania after an academic record notable only for its mediocrity was an egregious example of leveraging personal connections. DeSantis, the son of a TV ratings box installer and a nurse, actually earned his way into the Ivy League. DeSantis is demonstrably intelligent and industrious. He worked his way through Yale while playing baseball and graduated magna cum laude. Sounds like she's really impressed <laughs> by his resume. I think she's saying we shouldn't underestimate No one should I, underestimate him. I think that was a lesson learned with Donald Trump, though. I think when Donald Trump won, that changed our standard for everything. And I, I think that Ron DeSantis shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, but I, I do think that he's just using a playbook that we've seen before, right? I don't necessarily think that it's new. Um, He has more governing experience than Donald Trump did when he came into office. Uh, He has been able to play the culture wars really well in Florida, right, and play to the base. Um, But I don't think people are underestimating him. If Donald Trump could win, Ron DeSantis definitely could win. I think people are actually more afraid of what would happen if Ron DeSantis wins because he's actually implementing things that, that are terrifying. John? I think it's a weird, I thought this article was interesting, the column, but it's a weird straw man that's being set up here because I, I don't know who is underestimating Ron DeSantis. I think they're very uh, cognizant of the challenges, the unique challenges that he poses. I, I think there are two really interesting things. Number one, there's the Trump-DeSantis dynamic. There's does DeSantis even get through a primary and how they're going to go after each other. But if Democrats do face him, I, I do think that they are going to be posed with a challenge based on what they said about Donald Trump for four to six years, which was that Donald Trump is a unique threat to democracy, that our concerns about Donald Trump are something different. Barack Obama used to say so much in his speeches. He says, well, look, I mean, it's one thing about arguing with George W. Bush. I had an issue with his policies, but I wasn't terrified for the nation or shaking in my boots over what he might do to the foundations of our system. That's what they said about Trump. I don't think they can go and put that mantle on every Republican necessarily. Right. So I'm very curious to see if they try to do that, because I don't know that it will resonate quite the same way. I I don't think it's every Republican. I think there's something uniquely um, painful about this route that DeSantis is tapping into, right? We're talking about really personal things, black history, the pain and trauma that African-Americans have faced in this country to attack that head on, or the teachers and students who are on the front lines in classrooms to say what they cannot learn, to have your administration ask for a list of staff and programs and activities that are around diversity and inclusion. America, 
I believe we envision ourselves as being beyond that. Like, we've decided that diversity matters, that we believe in those principles. I think that the mainstream is there. And so when he does that... I actually think he's setting himself up to create more of a fight. Although, I mean, obviously his approval ratings are high in Florida. Well, look, yeah. I, what I, do you think, think of him? I, I think there's a lot to unpack here. First and foremost, uh, I would agree you can't underestimate Ron DeSantis. I think underestimate's the wrong word. I think it's dismissed. I think whether you looked at the extremeness of George Santos, who set a new uh, bar for over the top, or whether you're talking about just your everyday Republican. The reason that Newsday uh, missed what happened with George Santos, the reason why so many people dismissed the reality that Ron DeSantis became the first Republican uh, since 2002 to win Miami-Dade is because of the fact that so many people in the media and so many people on the left have decided that by virtue of simply being a Republican, you are extreme, that all Republicans are extreme. I don't know that that's true. I, I, I disagree. But, but, I, hold on, I, I just, Joe. Let me, let me let me just argue that because Ron DeSantis is doing things that are um, noteworthy for the culture warrior in him. I mean, he's doing things that are not just sort of standard Republican. I well, mean, what is standard Republican? I mean, I, literally, I think there's one person that writes all the tweets for Senator Schumer and leader uh, or, or the minority leader and Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, every single tweet is MAGA extremist this, MAGA extremist that. If you have decided writ large that every single Republican is a MAGA extremist, except for those Republicans who have effectively disavowed their own party and agree with your ideologies, then on some basic level, there is no distinction. And I think that is what this author was trying to tap into. This notion that so many Democrats have decided there is nothing redeemable about being a Republican, that Joe, Joe Biden can get on stage and quote the words of Abe Lincoln. But all the times in between the quoting of Lincoln, he is effectively calling half the people that call this country home, people that do not deserve to take the actual mantle of being an American. Well, I don't know about that. I, I don't think that Joe Biden plays that card. Often. Well, I, I, Joe Biden well, um, def- depends on the day. I don't know about that. He calls, I mean, he says MAGA Republicans very specifically. And what he... Who, what, again, who is he, MAGA Republicans? It's becoming this, you, it's become this thing where it's just this, it's whatever you need it to be in the moment. Well, he's no, that's, split the that's party. what wokeness is. That's what the right does with wokeness. Well, I would whatever with they you. need wokeness I, 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 to be. I would tend to agree with you. Anything that has to do with progression, uh, you know, inclusion, diversity, that goes under woke. And it's, there's an actual act, stop the, stop woke act that, is in place because of Ron DeSantis. So he is actually picking these fights. But would you, you say, to Joe's saying? point, would you say that Ron DeSantis is a MAGA Republican? Oh, absolutely. So, so he, he is in that, so he's, he's in, in the category. Here's, so here's my thing. Who, who are the non-MAGA Republicans at this point? And th- this is all I'm saying. I think that we have gotten to a point where 25% of Republicans may hold views that are prescribed to all Republicans, and when there is effectively 25% of Democrats that prescribe to a view, somehow it's their view and their view alone. So whatever that standard is that we're going to set to say, hey, we're going to have cogent public discourse, we have to be consistent in simply saying, here are the parameters, here are the guardrails, because the inability to do that actually prevents Republicans from engaging in good faith when they know that you're literally going to find that most extreme iteration of anything Thing any person with that letter next to their name has done okay. and prescribe it to them. There is no discourse in Florida. You're, it's literally being shut down and legislated into law. Well, so we can't even have a conversation about discourse I, I think, when you have a governor I think there is. who is telling teachers what he is legislating a lot of they can talk well, about. To, I mean, stuff. to be clear, I think, again, there are things that Ron DeSantis has done that I agree with. There are things that he has done that I disagree with. 
What do you I think the, the most important conversation we should be having is what is the root cause of him feeling the need to take these issues on? I think there are a lot of parents who, uh, whether we're talking, I mean, or is it political expediency? Has, is well, the I think root it, cause. of course it is. I mean, we live in the world of political expediency right now. I think for better and for worse, we live in the ends justify the means society. Yeah. But just out of curiosity, what do you disagree with that he's done? Look, I think anytime you're explaining, you're losing. And so I think that when he's talking about what happened with the AP African American History course and then has to go back and explain that it was because of these particular things that were included, by that time, uh, it's the don't say black bill on Twitter, right? So I think at some basic level, yes, there are things that we should be able to have a conversation about. Is it misguided? Is it appropriate? Yeah. But I think there are, there are things that the American people are concerned about, to this Arthur's point, that Democrats are too quick to dismiss, mm-hmm. whether it's simply saying, I do, you don't have to be someone who has hatred in your heart for gay people to simply say, perhaps we just have a conversation about whether drag shows are appropriate for elementary school Ten students. seconds left, Natasha. Do you want to respond? Um, it's, it's hard to know where to start because there was so much that you said. Um, all I can say is that the idea that we are controlling thought, right, it undermines the claim that liberals are the ones who, the, who are the most extreme. Liberals are the ones who are trying to control conversations and tell you what is to it, think. Is it controlling Look, thought? It, oh, absolutely. To, when to you say, say that, that we, we can't should... talk about intersectionality, Right? I don't think that or or I, I you or you say that queer theory doesn't matter to black history when you know Bayard Rustin planned the 1963 sure. march on Washington let's just focus on the facts I don't need you to agree with everything that I believe but we can allow for facts and that is how America grows I, by facing the truth right. about I, I us. Think we, that, we do have to leave it our history we, is. just, but I, just well, go ahead quickly, one second just go. One second. I do think that again the facts remain the same the context of the facts matter and the presentation and the age appropriateness of when we choose to matter does matter to parents. And I think that too many people on the left ignore that, I think, so okay. important. Thank you both very much. And John? Okay, a lot of people talking about Madonna's appearance at the Grammys. But as Washington Post columnist Monica Hess says, quote, you think that Madonna Louise Ciccone doesn't know what she's doing? Stay with us. What's going on with Madonna? Many people have strong feelings about how she looked at the Grammys the other night. There's no denying she looks different from the material girl that we've all known for decades, but Madonna is clapping back at her critics. Let's bring in the Washington Post's Monica Hesse. Her column is titled, The Unacceptable Look on Madonna's Face. Also back with us, Natasha Alford, Joe Pinion, and John Berman. Monica, thanks so much for being here. Why do you think that um, Madonna's appearance Uh, meaning her physical appearance at the Grammys has inspired such strong thoughts from people. Well, I think that women as they age are really in a double bind. If Madonna had had looked um, old, we would be saying she looks older. She looks tired. What's going on there? Um, and, and instead she showed up having a very different face than people were used to seeing her wear. And, um, and people aren't, aren't, liking that either. So I think that it's it's really a, a double bind and a tough situation for female celebrities to be in as they age. Natasha, I see it a little differently. I see it a little bit the way I see anorexia, which is it's like sort of body dysmorphia or face dysmorphia. You, when you see somebody like that, you think, oh, is she not seeing what we're seeing? When she looks in the mirror, what does she see? It's a, that's why I found it a little jarring, because she didn't look recognizable. Um, 
And I, I think we're all used to cosmetic surgery. We all know that people get cosmetic surgery. She's had it in the past. She's looked beautiful. I remember the 2012, fo- um, super, what's that football game called? The Super Bowl. <laughs> um, the Super Bowl, she did yeah. the halftime show. And I remember thinking, oh, she has had plastic surgery. Here she is. And she looks stunning. But this time, it was an un- there was an unrecognizable quality mm-hmm. that I found jarring. Well, I, I just want to say, first and foremost, as a woman who's in a business where we are judged, uh, you know, and it's not kind as you get older, whatever you do to your face and your body, that is your right to do it, okay? I think women are held to an unfair standard to look the same or, you know, to, to always be attractive. So, so that is a reality. But I do think that we, there is an extreme in the culture where people are doing so much uh, that being natural, right, just aging gracefully, so to speak, or not making alterations to your body gets you criticism. Um, and having the plastic surgery and whatever alterations is a little bit more normal. So, so I think people were reacting to this idea that, you know, why do we have to do the extreme? Why did she have to do anything to her face? Uh, we would love to see Madonna aging gracefully, so to speak. So you just kind of don't win either way. Monica, what about my theory that it's that it's that it looked so different that it was jarring to us? I think that that the cardinal infraction that Madonna committed, if indeed you believe she committed an infraction, is that the work was obvious. And I think that that's what you're saying. We are accustomed to people making tweaks, making tucks, showing up and saying, oh, I just I've just been sleeping a lot. I look so rested. Um, What Madonna did was not subtle and it was not something that you could ignore. And I think that 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 prompted um, discomfort in an audience that is accustomed to this being an open secret or to this being something that that you don't really talk about in polite company. Um, she, She looked in a way that that sort of asked people to remark on it and were not used to being put in that kind of position. John, do you have thoughts? I, look, I'm on Team Natasha here. I, I've, I've co-anchored a lot of shows with, with women before. I and remember. one of the things I've noticed is that I would get roughly zero comments ever about how I looked. And I look bad a lot Stop. of the time. But, Impossible. Okay, but, but my point is, is that the people I was sitting next to, the things that were said to them were shocking. For some reason, people feel entitled in our society to pass judgment whenever they want. Whether it's justified or not on on how a woman looks, what she wears, what her hair is doing. And that creates, I think, a perceived need by some people, by some women, to to do certain things to themselves. But is that what you think Madonna was doing? I don't know what you need. Madonna was doing what Madonna wanted to do, which I think she's done for a long time. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Joe, quickly. I, I think we do terrible things to women, forcing them to effectively feel as if they have to perform for other people at all times. And I think to Natasha's point, we should be asking the question, why is it that so many people feel as if they have to be something other than who they are? Uh, But irrespective of that, again, it's her choice. She's Madonna. She's an icon. uh, And she's going to be an icon no matter what she decides to do. Monica, uh, I mean, Madonna can do whatever she wants. Monica, thank you very much for the article. Thanks for being here. Guys, thank you for all of that. All right, there's another mystery at the zoo. This time, a gibbon in Japan got pregnant, except that she lives alone with no male visitors. 
What happened? I know what happened. Do you? There was a visitor. <laughs> I look forward to you explaining to us something. how that happened. Her enclosure doesn't allow for any visitors, John. So they say. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask Jeff Corwin about this mystery next. And next hour, Congress roasts themselves. Georgia gave us both Raphael Warnock and Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's here tonight. Where is she? Wave your hand, baby. She's here somewhere. Some say that's bipartisan. It's not. It's bipolar. Two zoo mysteries tonight. On the heels of animal tampering cases at the Dallas Zoo, what may be a copycat crime at the Houston Zoo. Officials there investigating possible vandalism to the brown pelican habitat. But there's an even bigger mystery at a zoo in Japan. How did an ape that lives alone in her enclosure without any male visitors get pregnant? Let's get some answers from wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin, host of Wildlife Nation. We'll get to the pregnant ape in a second, Jeff. But let's first start with what's going on at the Houston Zoo, because just last night you were on the program and you were saying you were concerned about copycat crimes. And so what was happening at the Dallas Zoo maybe has now bled over to the Houston Zoo in the case of this brown pelican. Yes, good evening, Allison. We're seeing this in a number of zoological institutions throughout the country. And it's really shocking because these are institutions that are altruistic. Their mission is to share wildlife, nature, and conservation with the world. You know, they're not a state penitentiary. It's not about super security. Although the Houston Zoo has incredible security. Allison, the Houston Zoo is a world-class zoo. It's probably one of my most favorite zoos in the country. Certainly the greatest zoo in Texas. And so, so how did it happen? Do, I mean, so, so what do you think went wrong? Well, I think we're getting these delinquent, sociopathic, narcissistic kleptomaniacs. And they're copycat crimes and they're going to these institutions in places that are designed to share nature with the world with adequate amount of security, but they're not designed to deal with intent of focused criminal actions like this. And that's what the challenge is today. This is something new. Historically, we've not had problems with people stealing wildlife from zoos, but now we're seeing this across the country from New York to Philadelphia and even in Texas. Um, all right, we'll talk about what to do later because um, unfortunately I assume we will have you back on since this seems to be a trend, but we have to talk about the mystery at this Japanese zoo of this pregnant gibbon, a female who lives alone, hasn't had any mm -hmm. male visitors. When I read this, Jeff, I was afraid this story was going to end in a very dark and twisted way. But it turns out that they are solving the mystery here. Um, when you heard this, did you have any sense of how she could possibly have gotten pregnant? You have this incredible story arc of life on Earth as it's been happening for millions of years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you have a little pencil hole sized hole in the fence. And was it really that's how a it hole? Oh, stop, hold on a second. Was it really a pencil hole sized well, hole? Well, maybe I'm being too judgmental about this, but, <laughs> but this has happened before where they think, they think a, a female is isolated and she is protected, mm -hmm. uh, but she's feeling a little amorous. Mm -hmm. 
the, 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 the fellow primate next door gets a sense of that. And he has a way to get from point A to point B. Yeah, except he has a way to get only one body part from point A to point B, because what I feel is all you need. Yeah, apparently it is. You're right. I mean, I feel like basically I'm thinking of a given. I'm thinking of a number two pencil eraser. And that's about all you need to pull this off. Wow. That is really visual. Thank you for that. Um, So we should just let everybody know that after two years of investigating, the zoo did a paternity test because she got pregnant and had the chimp. And they did a paternity test on the baby and the mom. And they found out, as you say, that the guy next door, there was a small hole between the enclosures. And um, like you said, I mean, it's a story of um, ingenuity, I would say, and uh, determination and romance. And And also, Allison, Mm -hmm. isn't it always the guy next door? (laughs) Don't we all know that? Yes, it is. Yes, it is, Jeff. Well, thank you for that tale as old as time. Yeah. Thank you. That was awesome. Okay. Talk soon. Okay. And new tonight, former Vice President Pence subpoenaed by the special counsel investigating Donald Trump. What exactly do they want to know from him? Stay with us. Former Vice President Mike Pence has been subpoenaed. This is a major move by the special counsel investigating Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Pence was key to Trump's plans to stay in power. Here's what the former president said on January 6th. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. Okay, I want to bring in CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, also legal analyst Jennifer Rogers, and senior law enforcement analyst Andrew McCabe, the former FBI deputy director. Great to have all of you here tonight. Jennifer, I want to start with you. We had Nick Ackerman on last hour, former um, Watergate prosecutor, who said that without Pence... There's no indictment. The the special prosecutor doesn't bring an indictment without Pence's testimony. Do you agree Mm. with that? Uh, I don't know, but I will say he is critical. And if they're going to bring an indictment, he will be front and center because there were conversations that he had with Trump that no one else was privy to. And it obviously at that time was the crucial conversations about whether Mike Pence was going to block the certification, which is what Trump wanted him to do. So crucial, yes, necessary. I'm not sure, but certainly the centerpiece. Andrew, what do you think about that? Because I mean, yes, he's critical. He's key. He knows what Donald Trump asked him to do um, about certifying, but there have been all sorts of other witnesses. Why would there be no indictment without Pence? You know, I'm not sure, Allison, that 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 I would characterize it that way. I think it's possible to go forward without him. What I don't think is possible is for Jack Smith to conclude his investigation without trying to secure Pence's testimony under oath. When you're conducting an investigation of this size and scope, and certainly one that will be second-guessed from every quarter, you have to look under every rock. And Mike Pence is a very big rock for Jack Smith. He has to try to get him under oath. He might not be successful, but he has to do everything possible to secure that testimony. If you look back at the Mueller report, 
the fact that the Mueller team chose not to subpoena Donald Trump uh, remains as kind of a hanging chad that many people, including myself, uh, think was a, a fundamental flaw in the investigation. Hmm. Here's what Mike Pence himself, John, has said about um, basically what President Trump wanted him to do. He said this to the Federalist Society a year ago. That President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. So there are times that he will talk about it. And so we don't know if he will talk to the uh, special counsel, but there's times he wants to get it off his chest. He's also written about it in his memoir. Well, I, I think Jen and um, Andy summed it up, which is there are conversations that Mike Pence had with Donald Trump, likely alone, possibly with others, where his direct testimony is critical. Um, in terms of tipping and cueing, where is a case at? When you are Jack Smith and you are subpoenaing the former vice president of the United States, it's a pretty good signal that that's one of the interviews, if not the interview you save for last because you want to have all of your investigative ducks in line before you talk to that critical witness. You want to be able to counter that with any kind of questions where you know everything you could know at that point. So it could be telling us that Jack Smith is rounding third base. That's really interesting. Here's who has already testified to the grand jury. So not to Jack Smith, the special counsel, but to the grand jury, who can also testify, I think, to President Trump's state of mind. Um, so that's Pat Cipollone, the former Trump White House counsel, Patrick Philbin, former deputy White House counsel, Mark Short, who's Pence's chief of staff, Greg Jacob, former Pence general counsel, Ken Cuccinelli, former Trump DHS official. So it seems like they had have some information that they can rely on, even without Pence. But what if, Jen, he says um, executive privilege, he invokes executive privilege, then does he not have to testify? He will testify. The question is, how long will it take? So if he does try to invoke executive privilege, then DOJ or DOJ through the special counsel will go to court and they'll fight it. But the law here is clear. In a criminal matter, if you have testimony that you need that is important and you can't get it from elsewhere, that's the key here, then that will trump any executive privilege. That's very clear Supreme Court precedent, U.S. versus Nixon. So that's not the case for congressional investigations, which is why Congress didn't have the ability to force people to testify in the same way. Uh, but he will lose that fight and he will testify. The question is, how much litigation do we see before that happens? That's really interesting because I hadn't heard it spelled out that unequivocally before. And so, Andy, do you agree that this means Jack Smith is rounding third base in terms of being close to being done? Well, I'd like to think so. Uh, I think it's as good a sign as we've seen so far. So it's entirely possible that he is. And I think in addition to that list of folks that we know uh, went in front of the grand jury, there are likely many others who didn't go to the grand jury, but who... Uh, who participated in voluntary interviews with the investigators and for whatever reason they felt they didn't need to put them in front of the grand jury. So they've done a lot of work. Uh, Jack Smith is a very aggressive, lean forward prosecutor, and there's uh, every indication to believe that he's he's carrying that uh, style through this investigation. Um, John, he can also, I assume, set some conditions. I mean, this actually goes to both of you. Um, he, if he's been negotiating, perhaps, with special counsel or the DOJ, 
Could he set some conditions of what he will answer, what he won't answer, what he will give up, what he won't give up? I'll start with you, Jen. Um, Somewhat. I mean, they're going to want his testimony under oath. Um, They would prefer to have him interviewed first um, with FBI agents. So not technically under oath, but still with the um, possibility of a false statement. So they'd rather do that than just put him in the grand jury. And Pence would probably rather have it be that way, too, so he can bring his lawyer with him. So they may be negotiating about that and things like that. Could he do written answers? I mean, I remember that that was an offer, I think, to Donald Trump. I mean, in theory, if the special counsel agreed, but they will not agree to that. They want his actual statements, right? So uh, there may be some negotiations there, but they will, he will not be able to say, I only want to answer some questions and not other questions. Because if he tries that, like there's executive privilege, I don't want to answer these questions about that. That's when they'll go to court and get the ruling that he has to. John? I mean, we are, I hate the term unprecedented times because all Every times day are is unprecedented, unprecedented here, but, yes. Um, you know, I remember the shockwaves, Andy will remember this too, that went through Congress when we executed, uh, when the FBI executed a search warrant um, in a congressman's office that, you know, how could this happen? And, you know, there was all kinds of, I mean, we are in a world right now where it is, it is almost routine in our discussions and what our audience hears every day that a search warrant is happening at a former president's residence that a consensual a search is happening at a current president's residence and another residence, and that, you know, the former vice president is under subpoena for grand jury testimony in a criminal matter. I can't remember a time like this in politics on the White House level. This is all remarkable. If you go back to Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, there was a grand jury, and, you know, he gave a statement. Grand juries are supposed to be secret. It was videotaped. It ended up being released. Um, a lot of these special accommodations um, in that manner can go awry uh, for people who want special conditions to testify remotely and so on. So we'll have to see uh, what Pence works out. But he's um, among this crowd. He has been most of uh, on the straight shooter variety in terms of going by the book. Okay, friends, thank you very much for all of that. Meanwhile, we want to talk about this, the Chinese spy balloon is in pieces, and the FBI is combing through those pieces for evidence. So we're going to find out what they've found out about what the Chinese were up to. Plus, the comedy of Congress. I think that Senator Schumer would have prayed the rosary while facing Mecca if he thought it would turn out more voters in the Atlanta suburbs. Okay, check out these new images. Evidence of the Chinese spy balloon is now in FBI hands tonight. Officials say the balloon was capable of monitoring U.S. communications. Former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe is back with us. Um, Andy, I was struck by the pictures of the FBI looking in the ocean, like t- hauling stuff out of the ocean after the balloon was shot down and you know debris spread over miles. What are they looking for and how can they find it? I mean, what exactly? There are some little pieces. How will they be able to determine what that balloon was doing or gathering? Yeah, so Allison, so those those photogra- photographs are very familiar to me. I actually started my career in the FBI uh, back in 1996 working on the TWA Flight 800 case. where We spent months trawling the Long Island Sound picking up tiny pieces of a shattered airplane and reassembling it in a hangar. So this is some of the work that the FBI does, you know, better than any other organization on the planet. 
Um, they're very, very good at understanding what they're looking for, at using technology to find those things, whether that's at the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of a lake or in someone's house, and then taking that material back to the lab to really tear it down to its elemental pieces to understand where it came from, you know, what it, what it's used for and, and who's responsible for it. So I'm confident that that's exactly what they're doing now. And as I understand it, the reason that the FBI is doing all of this because it could be used as evidence in future criminal charges. How would that work? Who can be charged criminally? Well, we don't we don't know yet, and I think that that's always a possibility that the FBI uh, kind of holds out there, right? So they'll do this examination and they'll preserve all this material so that it could be used as evidence. But truthfully, their main goal here is to understand what this equipment was used for and how it might have been threatening our national security. Uh, the intelligence collection from an operation like this is far more valuable to the FBI and to the country than really the idea of bringing an indictment against a you know person located in China or some other foreign place that you know who you'll you'll never really see in a U.S. court. So I would I'm confident that there are probably partners from the intelligence community and other agencies who are participating in the examination of what they bring up. Um, and we're all trying to, you know, this could potentially be a real gold mine of intelligence collection for the IC. Okay. Uh, Andy, thank you very much. Great to have you. I want to turn now to the former U.S. ambassador to China, Max Baucus. He's also a former Democratic senator from Montana. Mr. Ambassador, thanks so much for being here. So uh, let's talk about what you have seen and what you think this balloon represents. Um, do you think that it should have been shot down before it was either over Alaska or Montana? Well, frankly, the bigger question is, uh, what is the evidence? Um, what will the FBI find? How dangerous was the balloon? How much does it jeopardize national security? That's really the question. we got to get the facts. I think it probably would have been better um, if the um, if Secretary Austin were to have called uh, uh, General Wei Fenghao, the uh, director and military director in, um, in China, in advance when we saw it over the Aleutians and say, hey, what's going on here? What's this all about? To try to diffuse the tension rather than calling up um, General Wei Fenghao after it was shot down. So that's, I think we got to get the facts. But the main thing is, is not let this, no pun intended, it could be blown out of proportion. We've got to keep our cool, keep calm, because this is an extremely important relationship, U.S.-China. So let's not get too far ahead of ourselves and get the facts. Well, let me tell you what President Biden said about that today. I'll play this for you. Have relations now between the U.S. and China taken a big hit, no. frankly? No. The idea of shooting down a balloon that's gathering information over America um, and uh, is and that break that t makes relations worse. That was actually yesterday. Um, Ambassador, what do you think about that? Do you think that it, that it doesn't have an effect on relations as the president seemed to be suggesting? Well, I think it does have an effect. Um, I think it was a big unforced error. It's a big mistake uh, for China to do this. And um, President uh, Xi Jinping has egg on his face. Either he knew about it, it was nuts, stupid, to send a balloon over prior to the 
uh, potential visit of Secretary Blinken to the United States, or he didn't know about it. And it was the PLA who's floated that balloon over, and there's some miscommunication within the country. So I, it's, it's hurt, no question about it. I mean, look at all the congressional hearings, look at all the members of Congress very upset about it, and so on. It's, this is not helpful. Now, is it huge? Probably not, but it's not helpful. And I think it's really what it comes down to is both the United States and China say, okay, we are the two biggest countries. Let's figure out how we work better together. It's not happening yet because in the United States today, it's, it's so domestically, politically helpful to attack China, attack China, both political parties, including the administration. And that's fine. It's a good short-term game. But after a while, it causes China to hunker down, be more difficult. It never helps to call people names. And we're kind of doing that. So I'm just hopeful that we can take this incident, say, hey, wait a minute. Let's kind of put this in perspective and find a way to work better together. Do you think it's possible that they sent it over just out of sheer brazenness? I mean, that was one of the theories that just they've been sending, apparently, these balloons around. We have not always noticed them uh, over the U.S. They've been doing it globally and they've been doing it with impunity. I mean, so in other words, do you think it was a mistake or do you think that it was just brazenness? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I have not talked to President Xi Jinping and asked him, but I, I tend to think it was more a mistake. It was a, you know, a big colossal error. Why I don't why they sent it, I'm not sure. But if they were to do it intentionally, that is that is that's pretty means it's very they're politically tone deaf to the extreme. Hmm. We were just talking to Andy McCabe. Perhaps you heard it about now. It's in it's at Quantico. So Quantico, the FBI agents there are analyzing it to see what they can glean about what intelligence it was able to gather, if any, or the technology on it. What will the U.S. do with that? Well, it depends what we find. Um, you know, we surveil China, you know, as China surveils us. I'm not sure we have balloons over China, but we sure have satellites over China. We have U-2s flying alongside the Chinese coast, and they're pretty good, and just as China is surveilling us. So I suspect we'll get some information. I don't know that it's going to be cataclysmic, uh, but it's, it's, just, it's just another example of how we've been both trying to <clears> – <throat> learn more about each other. But I want to underline the main point here. we got to communicate better together. Um, you know, China didn't call us up and say, hey, we got a balloon that's gone astray. That, could have, that would have been great if they'd done that. We didn't call China up before, say it was over the loose and say, hey, what's going on here? That would have helped too. We just have to communicate more. We have to work better together with each other because China's not going away. It's a big country. It's always going to be there. They may have a different system, but they're not going away. And so let's just kind of keep this stuff in perspective. We'll see if this is a, an opening to do that. Um, former ambassador to China, Max Baucus, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. You bet. You bet. Up next, members of Congress cracking jokes about each other at an annual dinner. Some think that Raphael Warnock is the future of the Democrat Party. But nothing says political superstar like needing a runoff to beat Herschel Walker. Republicans and Democrats roasting one another at the Washington Press Club's 77th annual congressional dinner. And Nancy Mace... Well, she slayed. Check her out. 
There's only one reason that I was chosen to be your Republican speaker tonight. It's because Kevin McCarthy couldn't get the votes. <laughs> Thank God he's not here tonight, because I will probably be called into the principal's office tomorrow morning. Did you watch the? Uh, did you watch McCarthy during the speaker's vote? I know many of you uh, were in the halls of Congress during that vote. I haven't seen someone assume that many positions to appease the crazy Republicans and Stormy Daniels. <laughs> it only goes downhill from here, people. I mean, come on. But let's be honest. We all knew that Matt Gates would never let the vote get to 18. And I know everyone thinks Republicans aren't funny, but if you get a bunch of us together, we can be a real riot. Back with me, John Miller, also joining us, CNN political commentator and former Democratic representative from New York, Mondaire Jones, also CNN's John Berman. So is Congress just filled with comedians? <laughs> I think a lot of people are unintentionally funny, right? I mean, George Santos, in some ways, is one of the a funniest people alive. Yeah. Um, but not because he intends to be. Look, Nancy Mace uh, has sort of mastered or, or is on the verge of master, I think, this, this stick where optically she distances herself from the Republican Party, but on the substance she votes with the crazies who she was just criticizing every single time. Hmm. Um, John, jokes about January 6th, Matt Gates, too soon? So too soon and a little off kilter, I mean... It was a great line until you remember that people died that day. Uh, so not, uh, not exactly on pitch. It confuses me, John, because it's, it, part of it is amusing, and there's definitely amusing, I'll play more that she said, there are definitely amusing things, but it's also confusing because if they can, first of all, I mean, it's that, it's like, are, do we think that's funny, January 6th? But it's also, so you can all laugh together in a big room one night, and the next morning you go back to being toxic? Well, here's, that's one of the things that I took out of this was that I actually don't think there are that many opportunities where they get in a room and laugh together anymore. This harkens, whether, whether you think it's funny or not, and I'll let everyone else decide, I have to admit I chuckled more than once. Um, this harkens back to a day when there would be political debates during the day and they'd all get together and drink at night. There are a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen anymore. But I think that it, it's not wrong to long for that moment where these these folks could, you know, occasionally see each other as people. Well, I agree. I certainly agree with that. And when you were in Congress, did that happen? Look, we definitely socialized, some more than others. You know, I had a lot of great floor conversations. I was closer to the people with whom I served on committees. I was on the Judiciary Committee, uh, ironically, with some of the most far-right members of the And what was House that GOP. like? I mean, what was it like in the halls when you have to interact with well, them? people are a lot more charming and a lot friendlier than they are when, when they're debating. I mean, look, you know, you, you give as good as you get if, if you're good at the job of being a member of Congress, especially in these polarized times, but, you know, after the cameras are off, you're really supposed to to be respectful. In fact, when the cameras are on, you should be respectful. I agree. This is the thing that I, I find so vexing, which is if you guys really have relationships and if people are charming, let us see that. Let us see that because all we see is the vitriol, you know, and that's why a night like this. I mean, I think about the, um, Washington, the um, White House Correspondents Dinner, too, which also confuses me sometimes because everybody's yucking it up in there as though everybody are besties. And then the cameras go back on, to your point, Congressman, and everybody's hateful again. But let's let's listen to the comedy. Let's listen to a little bit more of Nancy Mace. And here's also Senator Chuck Schumer. 
Come on, George, you've given Republicans a bad name, and that's Lauren Boebert's job. <laughs> Just kidding, Lauren, don't shoot. I mean, really, like, who lies about being a, about playing college volleyball? Like, who does that? If you're gonna lie, at least make it about something big. Like you actually won the 2020 presidential election. I'm the first Jewish majority leader. But I am not just Jew-ish. Like some other New Yorkers in Congress. I'm Jewish. I'm the real thing, baby. Baruch Hashem. You were chuckling, John. It got you. Can I, can I just say, this was also a moment for Nancy Mace to get back at her political enemies, right? I mean, people like Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, even Kevin McCarthy at times, these people have publicly feuded with her. And so th- this, this, this isn't just innocuous. Do you innocuous. think she wrote her own stuff? I think she did. I think, you know, she got help from her staff, probably. If any, any good staff is, is worth, you know, their, their compensation, they should have been helping her. It's with a pretty funny stuff. staff. If she got staff is writing that jokes, I'm, I'm curious who did write those. Me too, because those are, those are real jokes yes. right there. I mean, and she was delivering them well. But on the pay, when I read them first on paper, I was like, wow, this is funny stuff. She, you could see in every wind up to the punchline, she's like, okay, here I go. <laughs> now it's coming. <laughs> I know. We didn't play the one that I thought was the funniest, where the youngest member of Congress is 25. She dropped an F-bomb. She dropped, dropped an F-bomb at the press That's club. why we didn't play it. Oh, all right. Well, I mean, it's so late at night. I feel like we can, feel like we can do that. She said, I'll just tell you guys. She said, so she was talking about the youngest member of Congress, and she, he's 25, and she said, F you, I have stretch marks older than you. I like that. Miller time laughed again. I know. That's good. See, John? We're, we're listening you up, aren't we? Mm-hmm. I, I needed that. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Meanwhile, uh, the sitting president typically grants a pregame interview to the network hosting the Super Bowl. This Sunday, it's on Fox. And it seems as though President Biden has not committed to that interview. Will he? Should he? That's next. Tonight, President Biden still has not committed to a pre-Super Bowl interview with Fox. The idea of a Super Bowl presidential sit-down originated with President George W. Bush. President Obama picked it up in 2009 and sat down for an interview every year. But President Trump was the first to opt out. That was in 2018. That was an interview with NBC. Back with me, John Miller, former Congressman Mondaire Jones, and John Furman. John, should President Biden sit down with Fox? Well, look, as a a card-carrying member of the the Journalist Party, I always want politicians and public officials to do as many interviews as possible. I I think it's always great to hear from them whenever we can, and they should feel free to answer questions all the time. That said, I've covered enough politicians, people who run for office to know that they do what what they think is best for them. If the White House and Joe Biden's political advisors think that sitting down with Fox News would be good for them, he'll do it. If he doesn't, he won't. Seems a little late 
I, I'm well, guessing I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know, but it seems like they would have to be planning it already. But, Congressman, my, my point is this. Uh, I don't think the Fox audience often gets an accurate or unfiltered um, view of President Biden because many of the hosts there slice and dice him six ways to Sunday. And so it's an opportunity where he could reach their audience in a way that he normally doesn't. In, in theory, uh, I don't think the people at Fox News are part of the journalism party. Uh, they're not real journalists. I mean, every chance they get to distort this president's record. And, and it's, not, it's not mere policy disagreements. I mean, th- those, those are fair game, right? Um, but it, it's, it's the vitriol. It's the blatant lying. It's still, to this day, the election denialism. It's the platforming of avowed white supremacists. I'm not going to second-guess this president's decision not to sit down with these people. Um, You know, look, Pete Buttigieg does a great job when he sits down with Fox. So what about that? I mean, you know, there's an advantage, maybe, to it. I mean, I don't know the answer, but I'm not talking about the people at Fox, though it would be rewarding them. I'm talking about the viewers, if they deserve to hear this, because it's a huge audience. I mean, the Super Bowl, it doesn't get any bigger than that. So you think no, though, he shouldn't. You're right. Look, the president had a huge audience during the State of the Union. Uh, when he spoke to tens of millions of Americans across the country and the world, even, um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that that was effective. Uh, it got great reviews, and I think the White House is is thinking about this and has made a decision that it's not going to be in his best interest. It, it, but also, a decision has not been made as as far as the reporting is. That's right. But I'm guessing the Super Bowl gets higher ratings than the State of the Union. Yeah, and the commercials are better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think he should. I hope he will. It's a tradition. Um, I go along with John, which is more interviews are better if you're communicating. I guess that the White House Communications Office has to look on Fox News as a hostile domestic power. And why would you send your, your player in there? Uh, but on the other hand, I think that Joe Biden is a good communicator. I think we saw a piece of that even in some you know, hostile territories the other night. And tradition matters. Uh, we've been talking on this show literally all week about civility and the loss of it. Um, Let's hope that there's enough civility and respect for the president of the United States that they can at least have a useful conversation for both. Here's the, uh, speaking of tradition, I'll just put up on the screen. So Obama spoke to CBS in 2013. Then he did sit down with Fox and uh, the next year, NBC, CBS. Trump did Fox first. And then he opted out of NBC, I'm told, because that was when he was going after the, the football players for taking a knee. And he thought that that I guess he didn't want to be asked about that. Um, 2019 CBS, and then he did Fox again. And President Biden did CBS, NBC. He has not granted Fox an interview during the entire time that he's in. He's been president. Um, but John, what about that? That he could just reach, um, you know, a, a huge swath of Americans. Look, he could. The, the the one thing that all those interviews you had up on there in the screen. The one thing they had in common is each of those presidents thought it was good for them to do. Um, again, this is this is capitalism. They do it if it thinks it benefits them, if they can profit from it. If they don't, they won't. I, I think it's that simple. I mean, he wouldn't be sitting down with Hannity, right? He's not going to sit down with Tucker. He would sit down with Brett Baer. And so it would be a, um, I think, for the president, I think that there are some settings that he's not great a great communicator in, and there are some that he's better. And I think a one-on-one, he's good at actually. Yeah. And so, you know, he might want to seize on that. And, and we saw we saw that when he went off script during the State of the Union. He was very deft in, in his interaction with the, a very rowdy, hostile 
Uh, and do you think he knew that that was going to happen? I mean, there's some question mm. about whether they crafted that. Look, I think whenever you accuse somebody of wanting to make cuts to Social Security and Medicare, even the even the, the dozens of them who have explicitly said they want to do precisely that. Are there dozens or are there know, three? Look, I, I, there are certainly more than three. There are three members of the, of the United States Senate alone who are on video saying that. Others will, will say, oh, I don't want to cut Social Security and Medicare, but um, I think we should make changes to it. But they don't they don't agree with um, lifting the income cap when it comes to Social Security. So clearly they're talking about raising the age of eligibility, which is a cut, by the way, or privatization, which, you know, if you were leading up to the 2008 financial crisis would have also been a cut because your savings would have been wiped away. John, last word. I would be very impressed if they scripted that out and then did heckling during the rehearsals to see how to get through it. Uh, My faith in the communication shop would go up. (laughs) All right. Gentlemen, thank you. Really fun to spend this time with you. Thanks so much for being here. All right. Ten former NFL players suing the league's disability benefit program, along with Roger Goodell and the Disability Board, accusing them of arbitrarily denying disability claims. Up next, we'll hear directly from one of the former players. Ten former NFL players are suing the NFL's Disability Benefit Program, Commissioner Roger Goodell, and the Disability Board. The players accused them of denying disability claims in an arbitrary and biased way. Joining me now is former NFL player Eric Smith and attorney Sam Katz representing the former NFL players. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Um, So, Eric, you say that there was a pattern of erroneous and arbitrary benefit denials. So give me some examples. What happened? Well, it was like you go to, they send you wherever in the country to see these doctors and you have 500 pages of medical records. In my case, shoulders, neck, back, knees. And you meet with the doctor, you get your x-rays and he comes in and spends five, 10 minutes evaluating you. And of all the injuries I've had when I played, even doctors I've known for my seven year career, they would spend more time evaluating one simple injury than this plan doctor was supposed to do to give us a full evaluation of our body. I was interested to read, Eric, that you suffered 13 documented traumatic brain injuries, but you were denied benefits in 2013. Then in 2015, as I understand it, you were seen by a different physician who was one of the lowest paid physicians. Um, and he found that you had 20 line of duty impairments. So how do you explain that discrepancy or how do they explain it? I feel like the best way to describe it would be pay to play. Like they get paid to see more people. You deny more people, you get sent more people. So you get more money for denying people. So why wouldn't you deny them? Um, In the lawsuit, Sam, uh, you guys allege that between March 31st, 2019 and April 1st, 2020, so basically a year, 4.5% of the players were found disabled by physicians who were paid more than $210,000. In that same time period, 30% of players were found to be disabled by physicians who were paid between $54,000 and $60,000. So in other words... The lower paid physicians find the athletes more disabled. The higher paid ones don't. I mean, is it truly that that just seems so blatant? 
Is it that obvious? It is. And as mentioned, there is powerful statistical evidence that strongly suggests that there's this systemic pattern that the higher the pay to the physician by the NFL Disability Board, the higher that physician's rate of denying benefits. You know, one example is there's an NFL uh, highly paid neuropsychologist who's received over 820000 from the NFL Disability Board. And this neuropsychologist, uh, across 29 different benefit evaluations, has never found any of the players to qualify. So that's a 100% denial rate. And this isn't an aberration. You know, there's an NFL Disability Board neurologist, for example, who's been paid over $1.4 million. And across 33 line of duty and TMP evaluations, the physician, once again, has a 100% denial rate. Like, the statistics on this stuff show, um, you know, across about 707 evaluations in the, in the statistical sample, there's been a hundred, there's 112 board paid physicians and more than half of those have never found any player to qualify for TMP. So let me play for you, Eric, what Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, said about this. You're always going to have people who may think they qualify for it. Doctors disagree. The joint board disagrees. That's the way the system works. But I would tell you the benefits in the NFL are off the charts. What's your response? The benefits are off the charts, but it's nearly impossible to get the benefits that are going to benefit these former players that need these to improve their quality of life. Like the, Think about some of these guys don't have insurance because the NFL only provides you five years insurance after you finish playing. And the NFL always talks about like player safety. We care about our guys. But as soon as you retire and you're done playing, they don't care anymore. They just pretend like they do. Um, Sam, here's the NFL's statement. This is from the spokesperson, Brian McCarthy. I'll read a portion of it. The disability plan, which is established by the NFL as part of the CBA, includes an uncapped financial commitment to provide benefits for any retired player that meets the eligibility requirements set by the parties. These eligibility requirements and administrative procedures were developed after consultation with occupational, mental, and physical health experts. The plan annually provides more than $330 million to deserving players and their families, the NFL disability plan is fair and administered by a professional staff overseen by a board compromise, uh, comprised, I should say, of an equal number of appointees of the NFL Players Association and the league, which includes retired players. Your response to that? Well, the defendants here have repeatedly, willfully, and systematically breached their fiduciary duty of loyalty through hostile and adversarial positions, bad faith, uh, active concealment, misrepresentations, and failing to act in the interest of disabled retired players and their beneficiaries. Uh, a clear example of this is the board's consistent misrepresentation of the fact that all board hired physicians are neutral and active concealment that many are in fact biased. You know, another example is related to the plan's terms, stating that the committee members and the board members must review all facts and circumstances in the administrative record. Mm -hmm. And despite their duty to do so, as laid out in the plan and as laid out by federal law, as well as their representations to, the, to applicants, you know, such, a, such as Eric, um, that they were doing so, the committee and board members have testified recently that their practice is not to review all of the evidence. Instead, they engaged in a, in a, in a pattern 
of rubber stamping the erroneous conclusions of, physici of physicians financially incentivized to deny claims. So, Eric, what do you want out of this lawsuit? We just want them to fix this sham of a process. Give guys a fair chance to be properly evaluated by a neutral physician. That's all we want. Like We want guys to be able to have a chance to get the benefit that they deserve. Like, we spent so many years destroying our bodies, playing through injuries, and now when you've come to like your last resort and you have, you're trying to improve your quality of life, you apply for this disability and then you come in and you could have done your appointment over a Zoom call, basically. Hmm. Well, Eric Smith and Sam Katz, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for explaining all of this. We will obviously be watching what happens with the case. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks everyone for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.